Hey guys, welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, where each episode we bring you a new interview with one of the film industry's top directors, conducted by one of their peers. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash the director's cut. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Rebecca Miller's new romantic comedy, Maggie's Plan, starring Greta Gerwig, Ethan Hawke, and Julianne Moore. The film follows young and independent Maggie, whose plan to raise her child as a single mother gets derailed when she falls for John, an anthropologist whose marriage to the brilliant professor Georgette is in shambles. After breaking up the marriage and marrying John, Maggie realizes she's fallen out of love with him and comes up with a new plan to get John back together with Georgette. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Ms. Miller spoke with director Robert Benton about the joys and challenges of making Maggie's plan. Listen on for highlights from their conversation, including how her background in painting influenced the imagery of the film and her unique nonlinear editing process. Enjoy. Uh, I want to say a few words now about this extraordinary film. A.O. Scott said in his review, he used the word generous. And I got very mad at that because that's the exact word I wanted to use. And um, because it is a generous film. It's a generous film without ever being sentimental. It's clear-headed without ever being cruel. It's a a deeply compassionate film about that toughest thing in the world to do a film about, which is life today. And and I think it's a it's a splendid work, and it's a privilege for me to be sitting here next to Rebecca. Now, I'm. If any of you are expecting a high-minded interview from me, you're not going to get it. Okay, it's I'm going to talk about the nuts and bolts of things because that's what interests me. I begin by asking you a question my, my wife said I should ask you, which is, do you paint anymore? I don't paint in the sense that I used to paint, like as a real painter with, you know, in, on big panels and things like that, but I paint for my movies. I do paint to find the color right. and composition and mood in movies. Okay, well, I'm going to go back to that in a minute. Rebecca's mother... Is an was an extraordinary photographer named Inga Morath. And I asked before, and I feel compelled to ask it again, uh, how much, because she was a, she was not simply a photographer, photographed still lifes and things like that. She was a narrative photographer and and splendid and had a great economy of, of what she did. Has she been an influence in, in your work? Definitely. I mean, I think she had. It's interesting because she had a kind of wit and um, she saw the absurd in a lot of situations. A lot of her photographs have a kind of surreal element to them, but at the same time, they're real life. It's just she observed things wryly and and there was no cruelty. There's some photographers that have a more yeah. satiric edge, but she had a wit about her 
photographs, and she talked to me a lot also about the mechanics of composition and why a, what's a great composition, you know, why is a triangle, why are triangles so important inside of compositions? And I remember when I was quite young, she would let me help her um, figure out which images to use for books and things. And so she was sort of, um, with, with, without being didactic about it, she was educating me visually, I think, and also used to take me to museums to look at paintings a lot, too. Because I think uh, Robert Altman once said, films are written in the camera, not on a word processor. And I think Rebecca's films are a great example of that, that they are, the, the narrative is contained, is expressed in the, in the photography as much as what people say, that it's not about, cinema is not about beautiful sunsets or slow motion. It's about, it's about character. It's about what you see. and most especially what you don't see. Before we came up here, we were talking about the pan at the end of the, toward the end of the film where you pan away from where you think you should be going. Can you describe that again? Well, well, there's a couple of places that we, that I wanted this idea that I developed with a cinematographer, Sam Levy, of a playful panning and a camera that has a kind of almost uh, prescient quality where it knows more than we do and it sort of shows us that there's more to the story that the characters knows or you know so that like when when uh, Greta and Ethan are walking down the hall and the camera suddenly just pans down to see that bench and you don't know why they're, you're looking at that bench and then it's going to end up being the bench that they sort of sit on to fall in love or when they're on the bench talking about his novel and the camera just sort of moves away and it's just standing there and it's empty and you hear them and then they walk down that path and they walk into that frame. And so the idea just that you, you know, that, um, that you, yeah, you, you don't necessarily, it's not where you think it's going to go or where it should go, but then eventually that makes sense, but that there's an economy, uh, of a, a visual language too. It, it is not just what you see, it's what you choose not to see. Um, do you, have you worked with the same cinematographer often? I worked with Ellen Curris for f the first three films, uh, Angela, The Personal Velocity, and then The Ballad of Jack and Rose. And then I worked with um, Declan Quinn for The Private Lives of Pippa Lee, and then this one I've worked with um, Sam Levy. So three so far. When we were talking downstairs, you were talking about the work process with this cinematographer. That could you describe that? Because it seemed to me you, you went. Oh, you, it wasn't exactly a shot list that you made, but you you described where the camera was roughly in each scene. You uh, you describe it. I can't. Describe no, it. I did have. We did have a shot list, which we developed. We developed one version of it. Um, we started sort of in August, and we went through to. We shot in February, so all that time. The first time we developed a shot list without locations, and the second lock shot list with, with, was with locations. And there were some alterations, and sometimes we'd have to lose a shot here and there because we, we had quite limited time to make the film. But um, generally, uh, it, 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 I, would, I felt much safer because we did have limited time. The days were very precious. Sometimes we had to do two or three moves in a day, company moves where everybody in the company moved. And um, with those shot lists, also the whole crew was you know could move much faster. How long was the shooting schedule? It was 24 days. 
the 24th day was a bonus because we had made our days so well that the producers, um, right. you know, made it possible for me to have an extra day. How many hours a day did you shoot? Well, it was generally we had 12 hour days. I mean, okay. we, we, we had a couple of longer days, but we had a couple of shorter days as well. So we managed to make our days mostly. When, when you were working, do you do, do you do many takes or do you do very few takes? Is it, is the general rule? I know it's like you can't make I, a well, blanket Well, I don't statement. do as nearly as many takes as I, most people I think. I, I do, now I've gotten to a point where I, I force myself to do more takes than I would often do. Like now I, I'll do up to 10 takes, sometimes seven to, you know, seven, eight. Um, I used to do three all the time. Then, then I started doing more because I realized also actors like to feel that they have more takes. Um, and also sometimes it's good for me to, to have that. It's just that I'm from a kind of school of such economy because I came up making these low budget films and it's sort of deep in me. <laughs> so, so, but, um, but I don't, I've never, I mean, I rarely would go over 10 takes. Okay. When, is there a difference in the way you're shooting now and the way you shot, say, on personal velocity? Very different, Could yeah. you describe that? Well, personal velocity um, was, we had two cameras, A and B, and they were, and they, A had the best shots, of course, and B had to be getting whatever was left. Right. But we would also assign, we would often assign each other, each camera a, a character. Let's say there were two people in the room, and both cameras were, we had a we had an idea a shooting plan especially for a camera because they got all the good compositions but but at the same time b camera was also getting the other character because we had 16 days to shoot that whole film and so we had to really be quick but there was also something about it that was what happened was something interesting happened which was the actors stopped knowing who was on camera when. They started to create, and they were these little cameras that were like consumer cameras. And so, in a way, because it was all it was digital, you know, film, and 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 so there, it created a very naturalistic effect for the actors. I felt they felt they felt quite liberated. Um, but th with this film, it was much more, uh, you know, it was a much narrower scope. Like I knew much better exactly how each shot was going to. As I did with Pippa Lee, it was closer. Those these two films are closer to the way that they're shot. I was able to be more control, you know, m control it more. But at the same time, I, I think when I also when I shot Personal Velocity and Jack and Rose, I was really concerned that the that the technology didn't get in the way of the actors doing their best performances because I thought, well, I mean, without a great performance, my movie's nothing because my movies are about human beings. So it's gotta the technology has to rise to meet the actor. And then when I did Pippa and this movie, I started feeling like I think I can make the actors feel free and still have a, a you know kind of give myself the gift of 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 more a little bit more. Uh, not using two cameras all the time, and although I, I and a little bit more intentional shots all the time, and although sometimes I use two cameras on emotional scenes because I want to save, you know, just make sure the actors are safe and that we can match the, you know, close up with the wide shot. When, when you are, I'm going to shift away from cinematography for a moment and talk about writing when you're writing the screenplay any screenplay do you have actors in mind 
whether you use them or not, do you write with a, with a performer in mind or do you write with someone you've known in your life in mind? Or I how, often what? write with people I know, in real people in mind. Right. I, use, I base a lot of my characters on people I know. Not really Maggie is not exactly someone I know. She was an amalgam because, of course, she came from a book and then she was sort of... I changed that character quite a lot, whereas Georgette is closer to what it was in the book. Um, and then, like, the friends, like, for example, Tony is completely based on one of my best friends, and anybody who knows him knows that. And the Pickle Man is also based on someone I know. So, um, I, I, yeah, I do, I do that quite a lot. Did you do much rewriting on this? Um, yeah, I did. I mean, the, the process of finding the script the first version of the script took a while because I had this wonderful kind of the geometry of the 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 the, the, the armature that that was the the novel, but it was only a few chapters in a much bigger novel, and so there was no you know there was no friends, there was no pickle man, there was no real plot exactly. So it, there was the switch and the idea of like her trying to give her husband back to his ex-wife but there wasn't um so it took a while to find that and I and I worked I talked to a lot of people at that time like Karen Rinaldi had many many conversations with her who was the writer um Rachel Horowitz one of the producers Mike Sabine Hoffman who's my editor I talked to a lot Cindy Tolan who's the casting director that I've worked with forever and she's also a kind of dramaturg so I talked to her a lot and Everybody uh, would give me their, you know, would just ask me questions. Those are the best kind of notes I find that not like telling you what to do, but um, asking questions like, you know, I remember Rachel saying, you know, what, well, Tony has to, I mean, you know, John has to find out. So what happens when John finds out? So then that would be great. Be, but then the really, what was exciting was then once I cast, that was the next stage of rewriting because the actors almost had to kind of, um, they were almost advocates for their characters. And Julianne said, I think I need to be uh, yes. seen to be in my profession. And so then I wrote the auditorium scene, for example. So, But there are then a lot of rewriting connected with the casting so that, yeah. so that you, you then shape it so that it, so that it fits the, the, the actor who's doing it. Right. Great. That's right. that is no, very few writers tend to do that. They tend to think this is the word the actor comes to meet me. You don't. Uh, we don't come to meet the actor, and it's very important to make sure that you do to do that, and that not a lot of people do. Right. No, I think it's. I for me, it's one of the great joys of it. Right. Is they so someone's like sew it on them, you know. And of course, you know they're going to create a character. I mean, they're creating a character, but it's got to be. I think it's it's nice to have that opportunity to have some months to be able to have that give and take. I like that. It, what is the rehearsal process like for you? Well. I do, we had a table read, um, which I don't normally do because I don't like to exhaust the words. But what we did was we had other actors do it except for Greta did it and other actors that we cast because I didn't want, well, first of all, we hadn't cast the whole movie yet anyway, but I didn't want to blow all these great moments like that you really want to have on screen. Right. So I have this thing where, you know, what we did was, we, we so we did that just to hear the rhythms, and then later when we had cast the whole thing, we would have, I would have them come for a couple of hours, read through the scenes, discuss whether certain things didn't make sense, or there were parts of scenes that didn't need to be there, or if somebody didn't feel right 
saying something that just wasn't coming out right, then we would kind of alter it and play with it. Talk a little bit about physical stuff. Um, but I'm very light. Like I, I have a very light touch in rehearsal because I want to see it all happen on screen. So it's that thing of like, you know, I, I you don't want to, you want to be prepared and make everyone feel safe, but you don't want to exhaust it. it. Do, do you allow room for improvisation? Well, it, it, the, it, there wasn't a lot of improvisation. Like for example, Julianne wanted no improvisation because she, learned her accent exactly to like the score of the script. Right. So there would in, in any of right. her scenes right. nobody was, you know, changing. The people the place that there's the most improvisation in this is between Maya and Bill when he's grating the cheese and she's she's you know they're talking about Odette and all that stuff. Right. That that there's there's improvisation in there that was built in. Um the little girl was made up a few things. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you made them up very well. Um uh, did the, the accent that Julian uses, did that come from the book, from you, or from her? Well, the book in the book she was French, and um, both the author and I felt she shouldn't probably be French because um, it just it felt like you know maybe you'd heard a lot of French accents. We talked about it. Me and Julianne talked about it. And we thought about German, and then we thought maybe that had too much baggage, and then Swedish was too lilting, so we arrived at Danish. Because okay. she had a friend who was Danish, and she said, that's a great accent, and I think I could you know, do it. And so we did that. But that is, again, letting the actor participate in what the character becomes. Definitely. Absolutely. When you... How soon from the time you had the script in what you considered was workable shape did you start the casting process? How long did it take to get the script to the workable shape? No, no, shape? no. 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 You, what you, once you had the script and what you thought was work, work, yeah. workable shape, not finished completely, but workable, when did you then begin the casting process? Well, I guess pretty much when we had it right, then we had to cast in order to really get all the money that we needed, you know, because the cast, right. it was cast contingent. So Julianne Moore um, was the first piece of the puzzle, and she said yes right away. She's somebody I know well, and right. you know I think she was just so tempted by that scene yeah. in the snow in particular. Mm -hmm. She loved that scene. Um, and then uh, I met Greta Gerwig and fell in love with her and thought she was the only person I felt could, I just felt she was just exactly right for this. And, um, and then came the hunt for John and figuring out who should be John, you know? But, but basically, the, the, the so I, as I remember it, it was all um, over that summer before we shot where we were casting the last of the, like Bill Hader and Maya Rudolph and all of that came came that, then in that early fall before we, we shot. But um, yeah, so pretty much when I had a script, then we started to look into it. And because as you know, it's like, it's without a cast, I, you know, I certainly could never get the money without cast. Yeah. When but to, let me go back to the question I started asking earlier. Once, once you had the cast and once you had the money, then the formal rehearsal process, sitting down in a room and reading the script through or breaking it into scenes, how did you how did you organize that? I just well, 
you know, it would be, we had the, the, the table reading happened much earlier when we didn't, I think we didn't even have all our money yet, but the, the, mo the moment we actually had all our actors, um, it was, you know, four, maybe three weeks out before we shot, and we would just organize, they'd come to my office, and we'd sit down, and we had a week during which we were going to do this, and it would be Greta and, like, let's say, uh, Greta and Ethan, and they read through all of their scenes, and then Ethan and Julianne, and then, you know, they would read through all of their scenes, and we we kind of picked them apart and talked about them, and listen, and I listened to them, and, you know, and then with Julianne and, and, and Greta, the same thing, and you could sort of feel the, you could just feel the scenes, you know, and what, uh, w without doing a lot of directing exactly in the sense of ch trying to change, I was more observing and um, trying to gauge where there might be things that I would have to kind of shift on set a little bit. Um, Can you give you an know. example of that? Of something that happened that you had to, on the set you had to make a shift? Well, um, for example, uh, Travis Fimmel had a lot of ideas, had, who played the pickle man, had a lot of ideas and was very, very imaginative with all sorts of things, like the flowers that he takes out of his pocket, that was his idea. He had a lot of those, but he had so many that it was almost like you had to kind of like say, okay, let's right. just use one yeah. and like figure yeah. out. How to, and so it was kind of trying to kind of both encourage that wonderful creativity and, and, and in a gentle way, you know, pull back so that there weren't too many things. That, um, but most directors don't listen to actors at all. They yeah, really I think that's, they, that's like, it's an awful thing. That's sort of like really not it's sort of like leaving a lot of money in the bank and, or yeah. you know, in a pot of gold and not, because they're, they're full of, the thing is though, isn't it? It's like, I guess the fear is once you open that Pandora's box that they won't stop, that they'll just take over the whole joint, right. you know? But I think that you have to have the confidence and that they'll respect when you say no and when you put limits on things. Um, it's yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard, it is kind of a hard road to hoe, like the between the two things, between opening up and staying your course, um, and you know, and also making people like Julianne. This performance was a, she took a lot of risks with this performance. Yeah. It's like big, kind yeah. of big, and 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 she was always asking me, is that am I, you know, please tell me, am I going too far? <laughs> like, and so, I mean, I, it, it was my job to make sure to tell her if I felt that she was going too far or that, you know. Right. But for the most part, her taste, you know, she has such good taste and a sense of what is really. So the truth is she, and also there was some things I could pull back in the editing too. Then because you do a number of takes, say three to five takes. Yeah. You have a choice in the editing of performance that you can shape performance once again in the editing. Yes, and, yes. And do you allow actors in the shooting variations so that you so that you can accommodate that that, that you can accommodate ideas oh, yeah. they have, plus not not being forced to accept all the ideas they have. Exactly. That makes sense. Exactly. Right. So somebody wants to try something. A completely different way, you know. It's it. It never hurts to do that once you've tried it the way you thought you should do it. Um, as long as it's still inside the character, like why not try it different ways? I find that usually things, kind of, 
it's not like you're going to get completely disparate ideas. It, they, they usually have some kind of uh, containing force, like some kind of logic that they stay inside of, I think. You know, you're not going to suddenly play something like crying and then laughing hysterically. <laughs> like, it's usually kind of going very s smaller variations within the theme. But, um, yeah, I, and I welcome all of that. And I, um, I sometimes think that, you know, it would be interesting to play more in a kind of expansive rehearsal process that doesn't necessarily involve the script. There's, I have something about the exhausting words, almost like words are magic. And I feel like an actor saying something on, you know, on camera, they're expending energy of the words. And if you use the words up too much, then it's, you have the danger that they're dead. But on the other hand, experimentation can be kind of great in like physical experimentation and so on. So I don't know. I mean, maybe one day I'll figure out a way. I used to write entirely other scenes for people to rehearse, like scenes that were almost the same but with different words. Really? Yeah. That's a wonderful <laughs> idea. I mean, to steal that idea. That's yeah, please do. I was like, it, it gives you the same scene, but it opens it up for the actors. Yeah, and then they can, and then then you have like a, it's just very labor intensive, and, and also you of course you need uh, time. Um, but I would like to one day kind of open, you know, have a moment where we could all go away together and have a week of doing that. And it's, sometimes it's hard because actors have schedules and lives and families, and you know you're lucky to get them for. Yeah. Anytime, really. But but that we were talking before. I may have mentioned this earlier. That from the very beginning, from the first film of Rebecca that I saw, straight through through this, she has a kind of authority, and authority can't be learned, and authority can't be manufactured, and and. It just is. And either you have it or you don't have it. And it's like a, a gift given. And maybe some people don't take advantage of it. But, she, but Rebecca's done an extraordinary job with absolute authority. All of these pictures, if you go back, they have an utter command of, of what the picture should be without making the, the actors of the cinematographers slaves to that command. And I think that's a, an astonishing uh, thing to be able to say about yourself. Or I'm just for me to say about you. Well, I'm, I, thank you. Um, is, is there any questions that anyone else would like to ask? Otherwise, I'll dither on forever. Oh, the editing process and how much am I there? Am I, I'm very present. I mean, the, the editor is usually begging me to stay out of the editing room for two weeks or a week and a half so she can just do her cut. You know, she's like, please, just don't. <laughs> don't show up for that period of time so she could cut the whole film t you know together that first pass so she does a whole pass and then I go in and every movie is different like with Jack and Rose which um I, I cut the movie backwards first we went I mean she had done her thing but then I went to the end because I thought the end has to work and then I moved my way all the way to the beginning and then we went then we started at the beginning again and we started moving our way that way you know or sometimes you might want you you might start at the beginning, but then cut islands in, you know, where you know. I don't think, I don't always cut, like, from the beginning and just cut, like, in a line that way. But I am always, um, I mean, she has off in the morning to work. She loves to have a couple of hours to try things so that she can have her creative, you know, 
her freedom. But then I, I, I'm, I'm there and I'm standing over every cut. And I, I used to, when I had, when I made Pippa Lee, <laughs> I, I was cutting it in Ireland and uh, I would lie down with my littlest son then still and to put him to sleep and to entertain myself because I had to lie there for ages. He didn't want me to leave the room. I would count the cuts in my scenes and I figured out that I had an average of 16 cuts per scene. Wow. <laughs> For some reason, every scene seemed to be 16 cuts. I thought, how strange. Just like, so you how long it took to put him to sleep. But um, uh, so I do, I am very, I'm very precise, but I also let her, you know, Sabine Hoffman, I've, this is my fourth film I made with her. And so we have a real connection and trust. Can I ask you a question, going back, not leaving out anything, but when you're writing, how important is it that you have the ending before you actually get to the ending? That you, when you're writing the script, you know where you're going, or is that sort of, you let it work itself out? Well, sometimes I think I have the ending, and then there's another surprise ending, you yeah, know? That's very good. I, you know, I'm working towards something, usually. But I mean, like, for example, in this, I thought the ending was Maggie and Lily walking off together after the wedding of John and Georgette. Originally, that right. was my... And then Karen Rinaldi, the writer, said to me one day, you know, it's so funny, like, in life, just when you think you've got it all sewn up and figured it out, something else happens. Some Something else comes along. And just something about the way she said that, I thought, of course, the pickle man has to come back. Because, you know, she's got it all right. sewn up. She's going to have this nice life. She's got this beautiful baby. She's gotten these two people back together. Right. And just when it's all nice and neat and tidy, Great. here he comes. And so that's an example of, like, you think I you've got admit, it I must admit, I didn't expect that. And it was really satisfying when he showed up. That's great. <laughs> he made The mess started to happen again. Yes, that's exactly the mess starts yeah. again. Um, when you're writing, to go back to that, do you... Keep it free and open, as you say you seem to be doing in the in the direction, and then and then tighten it up and tighten it up and tighten it up so you have exactly what you. But you, I'm very impressed that you give everybody a chance to say this is what what they want and and listen to them and treat them very seriously. And go ahead. Yes, I mean I do I do. Usually I start very small. Like short. I don't write usually enormous. Like some people write a two hundred pages and then they lop off bits. I tend to write like a nugget, and I expand, 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 expand. And in the case of this film, then I had to contract a bit because I needed to get it down to a certain page number. Um, but I definitely leave room. Usually, I have quite a small thing that then leaves room for 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 expansion and for detail and for embellishment and it starts to kind of because I don't want to write badly and puff it up and then all of a sudden I don't know how to get out of that you know I'd rather have everything be good even if it's kind of small exactly exactly that's very wise I'm I've I've done enough pumped up pictures that I didn't shred that I I I respect that very much um, again anyone else have any questions. Our budget was under ten million dollars. That's mystery, mysterious enough for you, <laughs> and under twenty too. No, it was it was a modest budget. It was I don't know. Am I am I supposed to talk about the budget? It's like yeah, it's like well under ten. 
Yeah, that most painters uh, make more um, experimental films. Well, I did make experimental films when I started out. Um, but, you know, to me, uh, the the visual, how, how do you tell it? Color is very, very important to me still. Um, but, and every film has a different level of words. Like, this is very much a, wor a movie that's, the humor is fired on by words, but a lot of the m emotional meaning is carried through the images and where the composition is and how it's you know how how the, it's told as a as a visual story. In a, in fact, in a way, I was even more keen to make sure that all the color really made sense, and and the compositions made sense because it's such a word movie. So me as a painter is definitely still there. Um, and I did start with paintings that had no sound and no beginning and no end, and they were in galleries, but I didn't want to stay there. I didn't want to keep going with that. The influence of my father on my writing. Well, I don't, yes, in a sense that I will listen to him uh, read his workout, so I'm sure I, I was influenced. Um, and his, he also started with character, was really kind of very character-based in terms of the way he wrote, but um, I, you know, in the end, I don't, the honest answer is I don't think any of us knows how much our parents have formed us, really. I don't think there's a way of judging that. I'd say, yeah, so I, I don't know, but I'm sure. Can I ask you a question? Were there scenes that were written, that were shot, and I don't really know what they were, but scenes were written and shot, and then in the editing process, they simply vanished? You know, this, unlike any other film I've ever made, there's only one scene in this movie that was cut, and it was a small scene with, with Lily, um, which was to come was meant to come between Maggie and Lily in the bedroom. It was a it was a, the first scene between Lily and Ma in 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 Lily's bedroom, and it was supposed to be after they have their love night in the in the China in Chinatown, and then she's so depressed and she's just like looking at Lily sleeping, and not there's no dialogue. But I did cut. We cut forty five minutes out of dialogue out of the movie. So no scenes were cut. Okay, but it was tightened up. But tight, 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 tight. It was like constantly cutting anything that just wasn't really working, you know? Were there times where you found yourself cutting things that you loved and you thought you loved and you thought you couldn't do without, but you, they suddenly just slipped away? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I can't remember them anymore, so I guess they weren't that important. But, but yeah, there were things that I thought that I, I, I loved, but at the same time, you know, n nothing that ended up really being essential. And everything was per for performance. A lot of it was for performance to make sure that every performance was absolutely the strongest. Like, I'm really obsessed with that, which I'm sure all directors are. Like, you know, just not leaving my actors hanging out in any way high and dry, which doesn't, it's not to say they didn't all deliver great performances. They did. But I think part of the job is just making sure that all the best things that they did, you know, that you're yeah. really looking frame by frame, you know, like you might be swishing between three or four takes in a, in a, in a scene. And, and uh, so, um, but some of it was for time contraction because like one of the most important things in this movie was the pace. So the idea that you have this kind of frothy pace, which then gets yeah. quiet for yeah. a bit. And there's actually a scene where um, 
it's the scene where she talks about her mother. Right. So that's where you know he th- takes her home to. I mean, she takes him to her house to get a sweater or whatever. They have a hot whiskey, and there was quite a long sequence in, in in which he holds up a rabbit of hers, this stuffed rabbit, and I had to cut that whole sequence out because it was just too long. I was like, how can we? What are we going to do? Because we have this rabbit, and so now we just cut that whole sequence out, and for no reason, he suddenly he has a rabbit on his lap. <laughs> <laughs> and only one person has ever noticed that he's got this little That's rabbit. That's so great. <laughs> That's a great thing in movies. There are these things that you think everybody's bound to know, and they don't. No. No, it was and amazing. little details that you think nobody will notice, and they all see it. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, a part of the, I think, the joy of making this movie was that I had come back from living in Ireland for some years and I was so happy to be in New York and there was something about my happiness that I think got into the movie you know I would look at the light in the morning and I would drop off my kids at school and I would look at the pink winter light and think how beautiful it was and look in Washington Square Park and I knew some of these locations so well that I would know well if you look east this is the light and if you look west this is the light and we looked you know locations we thought a lot about locations and we thought a lot about how to you know, there was a huge amount of thought that went into it. Also, for example, the location that is um, Maggie's apartment, I actually rented virtually the same apartment um, when I was uh, starting out from a poet, actually, you know, who had endless books in this apartment. So so there was a lot of things that I could draw from from that point of view. But then, you know, bringing it to Chinatown was so nice, too. Like, you really, I think you ended up with this really feeling of, of a, a full sense of New York that I loved. We shot in Williamsburg. That was really fun. Uh, yeah. Anyway. But that's one of the things that is that I hadn't thought about. Well, this is absolutely correct. The every moment in this picture was believable. Every place they went was believable. There was no place where I thought, "What are they doing there?" It was all cohesive. The world you created was so real and so believable that I thought, then I thought, well, wait, you don't live in New York, do you? I, well, I do. I mean, I, I lived for years in New York. Then I, we went away for six years, then we came, seven years, then we came back. Right. And now I do again. So, yeah, I definitely consider myself a New Yorker. Okay. Yeah. And but I mean, the, the, the truth of those things, the truth of the places, the, the, the way... The people behave in that academic world. It's so extraordinary. Well, that was, I got a lot of help from <laughs> that. You know, I have a friend, my friend Barbara Browning, who's a, she's a professor at NYU. And it was she who actually really helped me a lot with the, with the academic stuff. Because, you know, even though I've been, I was saying to you, I've teached now and then at, at NYU. I'm not, uh, a, you know, a professor in that world. And she helped me a lot kind of penetrate that world and in terms of the language. And in fact, I even use a piece of one of her papers in when Georgette is talking about that whole thing about Pussy Riot, that last paragraph right. is right out of one of my friend's papers. Uh. The relationship between Lily and Maggie, and how we established that rapport, and Lil, and and Ethan as well. Well, with Greta and went over to Ida Rohatton's house because Ida Rohatton is the daughter of the composer Michael Rohatton. So she would go over to his house and her house, and they played a few times, and they just spent time together. And Greta just fell in love with this little girl. I mean, she's just, I mean, she is kind of a brilliant 
child. This right. kid is just very, very special. And so, um, you know, by the time we got to set, they had really spent quite a lot of time together. Uh, and Ethan has a child in Ida's class in school. So it kind of like all worked out that there was a sort of really familiarity there between all of them. Uh, casting, you mean, did we consider other other girls? Oh, yeah, yeah. We we looked at a lot of other little girls. I mean, not a lot, maybe a handful of other girls, but they, we didn't, they were a lot, of, some of them were already actors and like little, they were kind of like mechanized in a way that she was so natural. And she wouldn't, she wasn't that, easy to work with in the sense that she would arrive and say, I don't want to do this. I am not doing this. Forget about it. <laughs> For like the first 45 minutes. And then gradually, you know, we would cajole her into doing it. And then she'd be great. Then she would suddenly start doing the scene. Everyone had to run to their posts because, you know, you had to get it in there. But. Oh, that's a great story. Well, of course, we consider, I mean, there's lots of people to consider and think about, but the wonderful thing about Ethan, I mean, he was a really good friend of Rachel Horowitz, is the producer, and so we were able to get to him. He's a New York person. I kind of like the idea that all, that the people, the main characters were all really New Yorkers. There was just something right about that. Um, and also, Ethan, you know, being kind of between the ages of these two women worked. Because if he gets to be too old, then I thought, then that is weird. You know, then it becomes all about age. I didn't want it to be about age. I wanted it to be about these individual people, you know. He's perfect. Okay? He's perfect. But I think he, he there was a, he, he had to do the most difficult thing. He had to be a kind of, Almost failure, almost success, and and he handled that so well. I mean, I believed him, I believed them all, but I believed him, and I think that was one of the trickiest per performances to give, and and to not overdo one side or overdo the other. I th I think he I, was brilliant I, in this picture. I'm so glad you said that because it's like I think it's not always not everyone sees how difficult that is to do. Also, the subtlety, like John, has to be different things depending on whose lens you're looking at him yeah. through. You know, you're looking at him in the beginning through the lens where he's this sort of hunk. Then he's le turns into a pain in the ass. Then he becomes this sort of actually. Um, then he becomes a failure. Then he becomes sort of a success when you see this guy coming up and asking him to sign his book. So you, you're constantly thinking different things of him. And, I, and, and he was able to play all of those Johns really well. But he's also, I mean, the character, yes, he did it brilliantly. And the character you wrote was, was one of those characters who's not a character on paper, who's a character in life. And that's one of the hardest things in the world to write is, is that character who's so nuanced and so believable and and to and to find the perfect person because I really thought they were the casting was was all extraordinary in this movie. In some ways, Ethan had the trickiest role to play because he just he just screwed it up. <laughs> and he just and he was a and he was one, and you loved him, but he just screwed it up. Yeah. I mean, I may have taken the wrong thing out of that, but I. Oh, absolutely! I but also, one of my favorite moments is where he where he says, after the whole thing has happened and it's it's worked, the trick has worked, and she's crying because after all, even though it was her plan, she's still being left by her husband. I mean, he still slept with somebody else, and then he says, "I don't know what to do," <laughs> and she's like, 
go back to Georgia. And he says, you think? Yeah. And he says, it yeah. like, was a great moment. That's an improvisational line. That's an example of an improvisational line. That was a great moment where he was like, you think? It is a great moment, yeah. It's a fabulous moment. He was moment. like, yeah, I think so. But that's what makes this more than a movie. Those, those tiny moments that make a picture really work. And, and it's, it's an accumulation of those things that are vital in making a picture go from being good to being great. Yes, with that. Thank you all very much. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. You can watch video of all our director Q&As on our website and our YouTube channel. And stay subscribed to The Director's Cut for more Q&As and highlights from other DGA events, as well as selections from our archive. Also on our website, you can explore our visual history program with long-form oral history interviews that delve deep into the careers of veteran DGA members. Check out the program at dga.org slash crafts slash visual history. And if you're enjoying The Director's Cut, please subscribe to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play Music so you won't miss an episode. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening and have a great week. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.